Wednesday, March 21st. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser and from Motley Fool Inside Value Uncle Joe Mager. Gentlemen, good to see you as always. What's happening? Uh, we have got earnings from General Mills. We're going to talk about what's going on in the beverage industry, some big things going on there, but we're going to start with Oracle. Uh, earnings from Oracle. Late Tuesday, Oracle reported an 18% increase in third quarter earnings. Joe Mager, this is a company you follow. This, this seems like they're just they're just cranking it out. Yeah, they're killing it. The one number you really need to watch with Oracle is new licenses and new revenue, uh, because where they really kill it is bringing in new customers. And because Oracle's products are so sticky and they're so successful at cross-selling, that that is the real big leading indicator where they're bringing in new clients and then they're going to work their magic on them for years to come. So again, in this quarter, was it was up depending on which metric you look at, uh, but single digits, which was good. I think it was a win of a quarter and they're doing very well. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I like those companies that bring in the new licensing revenue, and then they just have that sticky recurring revenue in in maintaining and servicing those licenses. We have a couple of companies in Stock Advisor that are like that. Uh, I think it was also uh, encouraging to see that Oracle is really pushing that move to the cloud. They're taking advantage of the of the growth there to to become a little bit more of a relevant player there. It, It seems like the Sun Microsystems acquisition is kind of lagging behind the rest of the business right now, but good numbers for sure. Um, we've seen other companies uh, making big acquisitions. You mentioned uh, Sun Micro. I mean, Joe, when you look at Oracle, the cash they're generating, um, is this a company that you think does acquisitions well? I mean, we, we, we've, you know, we were talking just the other day about Apple paying a dividend, um, share buybacks. You know, when you look at all the ways a company can allocate capital, what grade would you give Oracle? Hmm. I give them a B plus. I mean, the best way for a company to make successful acquisitions is if they have a captive customer base or a big distribution network. And we're going to talk about the latter in a minute. But with a captive customer base, let's say you're Oracle, well, they dominated databases for years, but they needed to expand like out from that. So what they do, they made some tuck in acquisitions, and they had this huge base of customers that. You know, once you're in bed with a database, like you invest serious man hours cost <laughs> uh, to build this in-house database, and changing away from that is so incredibly difficult. So once you're in with Oracle, you're really not going to leave. It's the Hotel California of, of you know, bedrooms and pink champagne. <laughs> anyway, but that's the beauty of their model, and they can make these acquisitions like Sun and allow them to incorporate that and cross-sell very successfully. And you know, to Jason's point, you know, we could bat around whether the Sun acquisitions turned out to be fruitful. I still think it's going to be a, a ways to figure that out. For a little context, the two things they bought with Sun, basically Sun owns Java mm-hmm. and Sun was hardware. And Oracle's always been software, so it was a real departure. But I think they've been very smart implementing Sun. Uh, they've walked away from a lot of bad business. So Sun used to sell a lot of hardware at low margins, low prices, very competitively. And Oracle was like, Mm-mm, no, we're too good for that. So they've walked away from it. And you've seen hardware sales actually fall. And if you just look at that, you think it's not going well. But they're really just turning away bad business. And meanwhile, they're incorporating Java and a lot more of their kind of end-to-end solutions in these turnkey big box machines that companies can buy. And once you once you buy one of these machines from them, you're basically entirely locked into Oracle because it's a complete solution. We're not even through the first quarter of 2012. Already Oracle shares up around 18%. Just to close out on Oracle, what do you think of the stock, the valuation? I like it. I think it's pretty attractive. 
I really have mixed feelings about management, though. When you listen to the conference calls, it's almost hilarious just how competitive they are. Uh, CEO Larry with, Ellison. With, with one another or just with other companies? With other companies. Uh, CEO Larry Ellison is this eccentric billionaire uh, who you get the impression will be leading this company until he's, well, <laughs> for a long time. Yes. Um, he'll be around for a while. And they hired Mark Hurd, the guy who got ran off from HP for some yep. indiscretions and some uh, <laughs> issues there. And he seems to be working out very well at Oracle. But what kind of creeps me out with them is when you listen to the conference calls, not they're really competitive, but in an obnoxious way, to be honest. Uh, they tout a lot of their wins in terms of new clients, which is smart. And you do want to communicate to the you know investing community that you're winning new business. But the way they do it is pretty heavy-handed. Uh, yesterday, Larry Ellison went on like, I don't know, a two-minute rant against how SAP's cloud offering stinks to put it mildly, and it was just like, okay, so at least we know where you stand with this. So, I don't know, I go back and forth on whether or not to to like these guys because they're aggressive or to just be like, eh, I'd like a little more humility. I'm sure that'll be fine because if there's one thing I've learned, it's a hubris never backfires. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Never, never. Shares of General Mills down very slightly this morning on its latest earnings. Uh, Jason, profits sort of came in the way Wall Street expected them uh, right in line with expectations there, but shocker, commodity costs are on the rise. Uh, shocker indeed. I think it goes in line with a little bit of what we talked about yesterday as well. I mean, it's not just General Mills. I mean, I think it's you're seeing higher costs of, of living in general. I mean, we yeah. know fuel prices are up, commodity costs are up. Uh, so it's it's interesting to look at General Mills over the past you know few over the past five years. Five years and out, I mean, longer, it's, it's been a, a sound market beater. But over the past few, uh, couple of years and into six months, uh, it's, it's definitely been trailing the market, I think, because of this, of this very problem. And it's, and it's not unique to them. I mean, you see a company like Clorox, very much the same thing, uh, when there are private label in-store brands where consumers can choose to, to you know, move down just a notch and save a little money. I think that's, that's, a, that's an argument that uh, they're going to consider. But you know, the long haul here is General Mills is making a lot of money selling their cereals. And uh, you know people are still going to buy Cheerios and Cinnamon Toast Crunch and all that good stuff. Um, I do think it's interesting to see how different companies pass these costs along. Because General Mills, for example, is obviously having a little bit of a tougher time passing their, their food inflation costs on. But you look at these companies like... Uh, Panera or Starbucks or Whole Foods Market, where the concern seems to always be higher food costs, food cost inflation, are they going to be able to pass that cost on? And they they always are able to pass that on. So it certainly, I think, uh, it it it, they, it lends itself to to the different consumers that I think these these companies serve. You know, Whole Foods and Panera they serve I think a different kind of consumer than your general consumer uh, shopping for those General Mills products. Well, and I'm assuming that at least part of that you just touched on has to do with customer experience because obviously if you're going to a Whole Foods, you know, I mean, Panera, Whole Foods, Starbucks, those all involve you know, leaving your house and and presumably doing something mildly enjoyable, whereas you know, you're picking up Cheerios. Well, you're probably doing the weekly grocery shopping. Going to Safeway is not enjoyable, Chris. <laughs> no, I mean you, that's an excellent point. I think that's part of the argument why I think Whole Foods is is really doing so well is because it's beyond grocery shopping. It is an experience, and and they're able to to bring so many different things into that to that one visit to that store. Uh, so you know, the long and short of it is that yes, these are short term issues that I think General Mills is going to be facing along with the, with everyone else, but. You know, 
they're still going to be able to to pass these costs along and, and remain successful over the long haul. It's it's a good company. It's just you know some short term headwinds. Yeah, the time to buy food producing companies like General Mills is when commodity costs are high and analysts are complaining about it. That's always when margins are narrow, and that means that there's room for upside once they get back to normal. And I've seen that play out so many times with so many food companies. Yeah, and it's just very obvious to, to Joe's point there. You look at the three month, six month, one year chart on something like General Mills. And you see that the market is sour on it because of those very reasons. Joe's right. This is the time to buy it. Um, one company you haven't mentioned that is obviously a big competitor for General Mills is Kellogg's. Um, mm-hmm. Over the last one, two, five years, General Mills soundly beating Kellogg's uh, in terms of its stock performance. Um, we had talked, uh, I know, at some point last year about Kellogg's having some some uh, food safety issues and, and that sort of thing. Uh, just operationally, is General Mills, in your opinion, just a very well-run company? Because it seems like that kind of performance, because Kellogg's is facing probably all of the same input costs that General Mills is, that to me would indicate that operationally, it's just a better functioning company. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, General Mills tends to be the better performer of the two. Uh, They both key in on very much the same markets and cereals and snack foods. You know, Kellogg just bought Pringles, so yay, Pringles, and yes. we all eat those. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's there's a point there. Uh, soda sales in the United States have been declining for the past seven years, and the pace of that decline increased in 2011. Uh, the overall beverage market is up thanks to bottled water, energy drinks, and, and the like. Uh, but Beverage Digest reported this week that the big three beverage companies, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and Dr. Pepper Snapple, all sold lower volumes in the U.S. Uh, last year as all of the leading soda brands were falling. Coke, Pepsi, um, all of them. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> I was going to say, Jason, you and I were certainly doing our part to keep uh, sales of Diet Coke uh, mm-hmm. going strong. Um, first and foremost, I'm assuming, Joe, this is not a surprise to you that, that soda sales are falling. Yeah, this has been kind of an ongoing trend. And I would say, remember, this is kind of a U.S.-centric trend. Abroad, this is a different story. Coke's killing it abroad. I mean, Coke and PepsiCo, but Coke especially, have been ahead of the curve on this. It's not news to them that they needed to differentiate and diversify away from, you know, the brands that have treated them so well. But because of the distribution networks they have, they're able to do that and do it in a very profitable way and make some really smart tuck-in acquisitions to take advantage of that. I will say also, just from the experience of living abroad, it, this sounds a little bit silly to say, but things like Coke and Pepsi are still somewhat of, of a luxury kind of brand over there. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a status symbol for someone to be able to go out and get a Diet Coke or a Pepsi product or something like that. Whereas, obviously, here it's it's just part of our everyday you know routine. Uh, so it is an, it is a, a U.S. and North American specific issue, but I think it's also just a testament to the amount of substitutes and options that are out there on the market today. There are more, it seems, than ever before, and uh, no question, a more focus on on drinking things that are good for you. And it's not to really say that coffee is necessarily good for you, but. Uh, I think sure are. it is. There's a study that comes out like every six months about the health benefits. <laughs> At least of a coffee. couple of cups a day, right? <laughs> but I mean, I uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot more substitutes out there than were before. So if you're an investor, I mean, I'm a Coke shareholder. Um, but if you're if you own shares of Coke, Pepsi, Dr Pepper, Snapple, 
what should you be thinking about this? Because is this not really a concern? Because as you said, Joe, soda sales in the rest of the world are doing well. Um, are you happy that the overall beverage market is up and you know these companies are diversified? They're not just betting it all on soda. They've got their their juices and their bottled waters and that sort of thing. What what should investors be thinking about all this? I wouldn't sweat this. Um, Remember, Coke gets about two-thirds of its sales from outside the U.S., so they're a predominantly international company. And within its U.S. base, remember, it's not just Coca-Cola. You know, they've also got Powerade, they've got Dasani, they've got Sprite, and there are a host of other small brands. And Honest Tea, which is a company that we love here at The Fool, they've, the TEO has come. And Seth Goldman. <clears throat> Seth like Goldman's that. come and spoken here a couple times. And to me, Honest Tea is a perfect example of Coke's competitive advantages, where when Honest Tea started out, they had a real kind of rogue, upstart, healthy brand, but they didn't have any distribution. And so they ultimately had to partner with Coke. Coke's a natural partner for it because they are everywhere and they have the trucks to get product where it needs to be quickly and cold. And by buying an Honest Tea, they get this rogue, healthy brand that they can plug into this huge distribution network, bring out tons of sales, and it's a great win for them. You mentioned three companies there in Coke, Pepsi, and Dr. Pepper, and I think shareholders of companies like Coke and Pepsi definitely don't want to be sweating something like this for the very reason of, of the distribution models and just the broad array of, of products that they offer and, and the new products that they bring to the market every day. Uh, but you look at a company like Dr. Pepper, for example, and we know Dr. Pepper Snapple Group just signed these distribution agreements with Coke and Pepsi over the past couple of years, which I think is really a testament, again, to those two companies, Coke and Pepsi's strength in the market because of their distribution models. It, a company like Dr. Pepper in, in honesty, even to a degree, is going to be very dependent on that type of distribution. And so really, for, for shareholders of Coke and Pepsi, I think you have to kind of be taking solace in this, knowing that you've got the two big winners. Yeah. Where do you guys think the juice market is headed? And I ask that because Starbucks uh, this week opened its first Evolution Fresh juice store, a retail store in Bellevue, Washington. Um, how big is the ceiling for something like that? Because I, I'm i a Starbucks shareholder. I'm tempted to say, well, I, I just don't think it's going to be that big. But you look at a company like Jamba Juice, which has somewhere in the neighborhood of 770 retail locations, um, that tells me that there's, there's certainly uh, a higher ceiling than I would have guessed in the first place. Joe, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think Starbucks has done a pretty amazing job of taking a product that we used to basically get for free and charging <laughs> us a couple bucks for it, and we gladly, you know, hit it like rats, you know, go in for pellets. Uh, I do think they've obviously got the expertise on making that happen. I don't think juice is something that they'll be able to peddle in quite the same way. Uh, that doesn't mean that you need to sell people on buying it every day, but coffee's addictive nature makes it the perfect. I mean, when you think back, the genius of this brand with Starbucks, it really is an addictive substance, and you just keep coming back for it, whereas juice would be a little bit of a tougher sell. Uh, but I do like the general concept of trying to upgrade people from something that's always been cheap to the super premium version, and that concept has been working so well right now. You know, it worked with coffee. It worked with burritos with Chipotle. Mm. I mean, it's not like you couldn't buy a burrito for many years before Chipotle <laughs> came along, but they just came out and they did it better and they did a, a more premium offering and, and people have eaten it up and, you know, to Jason's point with Whole Foods, exact same thing. Yeah, I think if you flip this thing around, if Starbucks was initially a juice company that was trying to parlay its success into into coffee, this would have never worked. Uh Juice, I don't think, is really addictive. Coffee is. So I think people really bit, bit on the hook there. Uh, but, I mean, they're, they're, they're 
stepping stone here with Evolution Fresh is just that. It's a stepping stone into the greater health and wellness market, which I think will play out. I think they've they've been able to develop a brand that is that is so successful and so recognizable and so understood by so many, you know, consumers worldwide that this will be a good stepping stone for them. But yeah, the juice market in general, I don't know, is going to be some big billion dollar uh, moneymaker. Just to wrap up on beverages, if all of our listeners came to your house, and let's face it, <laughs> Jesus they all could. could they, they could all fit in your house. Um, if they all come to your house, what are you serving? What's what's the beverage they're going to get at uh, at the Moser house? See, I think I would go with my my coffee prowess here. Man, I would take the beans and my grinder here, and I would get fire up my machine, and I would give you an, an you know an espresso or a cappuccino beverage, not some you know verismo single serve thing. This okay. is the real deal. You know, you're going to get it cinnamon on top, the good foam, everything. Man, I'm. I'm I'm learning how to do that very well. You've got barista kung fu? I, I do. And this was a gift for my <laughs> wife a couple of Christmases ago. And it's the gift that just keeps on giving because I learned how to make the beverages. Nice. Joe, what about you? Well, growing up as the son of a liquor store owner, <laughs> I'm <laughs> so very particular <laughs> about my drinks. And everything I drink is seasonal and fits the time of day. So, for example, I had a buddy over uh, this weekend. And we had a couple uh, Bell's Lagers on the deck. It was nice, crisp, sunny day. Mm-hmm. But then when it got cool, we had dinner. We had some port to go with that. Port. What's uh, what's? Guys, like, I mean, you mentioned seasonal beverages. We're we're heading into spring here. What's what's a couple? Well, of it's s- about gin and tonic time, <laughs> is which it? I am very excited about. I'm a big fan of Hendrix and Junipero, by the way. Okay, great brands. You come to my house, I will absolutely serve you some high quality whiskey. Got the Irish whiskey, got the scotch, got the bourbon, whatever you like. Absolutely. I thought you were working a pun in there with no, some vodka or no, something, no, no, but I no. guess we missed that one. No. He makes whiskey pancakes, too. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. i got to wait till the kids get a little bit older. The four green whiskey pancakes, right? <laughs> exactly. Jason Moser, Joe Mager. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.